Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment strategies. Thank you so much for listening in. Lily Howard Scott is a curriculum developer and social and emotional learning coach. She received her master's in teaching literacy and childhood general education from Bank Street College of Education where she now teaches in the Continuing Professional Studies Department. For nearly 10 years, Lily taught elementary school in both public and independent settings. Lily believes that social, emotional, and academic learning are inextricably linked. She is especially interested in designing curriculum that weaves together literacy learning and SEL, and she has led professional development for educators around the country on topics including cultivating emotional literacy through reading and writing instruction, normalizing vulnerability in the classroom, and helping children explore and empathize with varied perspectives through interactive read-alouds. Today, Lily is joining the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to share strategies for authentically and intentionally integrating social and emotional learning into our schools, classrooms, and instruction. This conversation connects to the community and planning strands of the PEBC teaching framework. Lily, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast today. This season, we are focusing on all the ways that we can craft scaffolds for our students and school communities to flourish. But before we jump into our conversation today about the ways in which SEL can naturally be infused into our everyday practices, I'd love to hear your story. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. It's really wonderful to be here. So yes, I, I currently support teachers and school leaders with social emotional learning and with literacy learning, but I will always, always identify as a third grade teacher at heart. Um, <laughs> I, I taught elementary school for many years, mostly third graders. And you know, third graders are wonderful company. They are not yet paralyzed, I think, by the self-consciousness that can afflict older students in fifth and sixth grade and you know, beyond, clearly. And I, I learned from them, you know, just how willing they are to investigate their inner lives, to name their feelings, to talk about what's on their mind, to share their, you know, very honest and often uh, hilarious experiences. They yearn to connect with one another. And um, I'm so grateful to my third graders because they, they really sort of um, helped me understand that kids bring a lot to school, like their unique strengths, their unique worries, their unique projections, their, uh, you know, just all that stuff that's swirling within all of us, third graders will tell you about it. And so they helped me understand that social and emotional and academic learning is always linked together because how they were feeling in my classroom on any particular day and their ability to name, share about, manage their inner lives, was just tethered to how they did on that day, right? You know, how you feel at school is always linked to how you do at school. And, um, you know, because of my time really learning from my third grade students, I became, uh, I became an SEL devotee and, and SEL became the most important part of my practice. Wow, Lily, thank you so much. And thank you for that <laughs> shout out for third graders, right? Like 
what they're the best people they are, right? They're just, and, you know, I just so appreciate you bringing kids into our conversation today. And yes. um, just to hearing, you know, your journey, like that, that identity that we hold as teachers, um, even if a lot of our time is spent supporting adult learners, and now you are an SEL coach. And so I'm inferring tons of, you know, tons of your time is spent in the classroom. And a lot of your time is spent working with school leaders and teachers. And so I'm really excited to, to take both areas of your, of your experiences and yeah. really dive into this topic of SEL. You know, it's gained so much attention in the past couple yeah. of years. And there are so many different takes and perspectives and acronyms on exactly what SEL is and what it might not be. And so I think for our listeners today, I'd love to dive into what is your working definition of SEL? So when you're sharing some strategies yeah. with all of us, what do you mean by that term or, or how do you define it? Thanks for asking. Yeah, SEL, I like to say that SEL is all good things. <laughs> um, you know, uh, first, before I share my definition, I do wanna honor CASEL's definition, the Collaborative for Academic, Social and Emotional Learning. It's, it's just so good. Uh, CASEL's definition is the idea that SEL is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships and make responsible and caring decisions. So that's a lot, right? That is a lot. That's, that's all good things. I would narrow that down into two more actionable buckets. Okay. I would say the first, the first component of SEL to me is this idea of emotional literacy, which I define as the ability to name, uh, to productively share about, and to manage your inner life, your emotions, as well as to imagine the emotional experiences of others. And that's a heavy hitter, right? Because emotionally literate kids who grow into emotionally literate uh, adults can do a lot. You know, they can interrupt their assumptions about peers and colleagues. They can like very deftly, you know, manage their anxieties and persevere through challenges. Um, they can really, I think, operate with openness and, and compassion. And they can do something really important. They can connect with other people. So that's like my second bucket of SEL for me is connectedness. Um, and defining connectedness as the ability to really see, hear, and value other people and their contributions despite myriad differences. And Dr. Brene Brown, um, you might be familiar with her work, uh, has done a lot of recent research around connectedness and she's discovered something really special, which is that the degree to which people can connect with one another is in direct proportion to the, agree, to, the degree to which they can connect with themselves. Mm -hmm. In other words, the degree to which they're emotionally literate, which really makes a lot of sense. And so trying to foster emotional literacy and connectedness in the classroom is, um, is my biggest priority. And, you know, uh, a lot of people say, wow, that, that sounds like a lot. How can you do that? And teach math and teach writing and teach reading. But the real joy is that um, strategies that promote emotional literacy and connectedness, it's not like a separate part of the day. Like here's our 45 minute emotional literacy block. These are strategies that are woven into every single moment of the day. Um, it's all integrated and um, really actually boosts academic achievement as well. It's not kind of like a nice to have, like a cozy, touchy-feely, lovely addendum, I'd argue that emotional literacy and connectedness is actually a, 
prerequisite for meaningful academic learning too. Mm. So Lily, I love the way that you shared the the castle definition with us, but then also yeah. break it down into these kind of two buckets that we can think about today. Um, this idea of emotional literacy and then the importance of connectedness. And you actually just started kind of walking down the path of <laughs> and something I'm super curious about is, you know, you just mentioned that with a strong kind of social and emotional learning component, we can actually boost academic achievement. But my yes. question for you in, in that realm or even a little bit bigger is, why is social emotional learning so important? It's particularly in schools today. Sure, sure. Well, maybe I'll sort of address that first part and then the second part. Yeah, so absolutely. the first part, um, you know, this is luckily for me in this answer, I can refer to neuroscience here, which really helps. Dr. Mary Helen Mardino Yang in California, Dr. Bruce Perry, he's written all those bestsellers. All their recent research around kids' brains really illustrates that this old idea that like emotions kind of get in the way of clear-headed thinking is actually totally off and learning is inherently emotional. So brain scans reveal that kids who feel connected at school, safe at school, comfortable at school, kids who have strategies uh, with which they can, you know, talk back to the voices in their head that uh, promote worry or anxiety, kids who have normalized how to navigate failure, all that good stuff. Those are the kids that actually are able to take the risks that inspire meaningful learning. Those kids' cortexes, like, you know, get all bright and buzzy with that exciting neural activity. Kids who um, don't feel secure, safe, comfortable at school, who don't yet have the strategies with which to productively manage their inner lives, um, they're sort of, you know, they're processing stress in the lower parts of their brains. They're not yet ready to take those risks that inspire the most meaningful and lasting learning. And so this is this is just a big shift, this idea that, um, that social and emotional and academic learning really always go together. And I understand why for some, it's hard to wrap their heads around. But mm -hmm. then when you think about like your moments of great success in school, right? Or your moments of great, great learning, aha moments at school, um, they probably were moments where you took a big risk, where you tried something new, where there was a teacher or a peer nearby who you felt wouldn't make fun of you if you, if you failed. You know what I mean? It was probably tied up with a lot of emotional stuff. Uh, so does that answer your first question? Absolutely. Okay. And I love, like, <laughs> thank you, like bring on the research, right? Like, you know, all yeah. of our listeners, we are all these kind of, you know, research geeks and like love to hear that the science and the statistics behind it. And I, one thing that just popped into my mind when you were talking is about how your brain's getting like fuzzy with activity. And I yeah. love that image, that idea of when we feel safe and connected and trusted that our brains actually light up. Yes, yes, in, in the scans, right? It's it basically, uh, you know, our cortexes, which humans are so proud, we're, we're so proud yes. of our cortexes. Uh, Dr. Mary Helen Mardino Yang's uh, research, her images show that, that, uh, that that's when all those neural pathways are formed, you know, that's when the synapses fire is, is when kids really feel connected, safe, comfortable, inspired. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, that second question around, well, why is it important? Um, it's important for so many reasons, but I think right now it's particularly important because the social landscape has really shifted. You know, we live in a pretty interconnected world now, right? Where you, we are most likely going to work and, and live around people who may not look just like us or think just like us. 
And many people have written about how success these days really is often tethered to non-cognitive skills, right? Like um, self-regulation, self-awareness, diplomacy, an ability to understand multiple perspectives, all that stuff is much more important now than it was maybe a hundred years ago um, when success was more closely tied to individual performance metrics. So I'd argue that those metrics may have been uh, total hogwash anyway. But um, now when you can you know, find an answer to a question very, very quickly um, on your computer, it's just school I think should look a little different and be less about teaching skills, names, dates, facts in a vacuum and, and more about teaching you know, kids to be sort of functional, effective, self-loving, self-aware, curious humans. And again, this doesn't need to happen in a tectonic way. It's not like teachers need tons of new training or we need to block off a huge section of the day. All of this can be done through these very powerful micro decisions that are just woven into the school day. And honestly, many great teachers are already doing this. They may not be calling it SEL, but they've been doing it for years and they need the freedom and permission to keep doing it, to keep prioritizing it. Wow, so that is so powerful. And I'm so curious about what those micro decisions might look like and sound like, as well as maybe some macro decisions. But one thing yeah. you mentioned just got me thinking about this idea of, of pushback, if you will, or yes. um, hesitancy or reluctancy. Um, you know, you, you hear lots of different reasons why we may or may not be able to engage in SEL learning in schools. So yeah. when it comes to pushback or reticence, what do you hear? What are you hearing and what does that thank look Thank you like? for asking. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for asking because I think addressing that is really important. Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of pushback. So the first pushback bucket, I'd say, in a way we already addressed, is this idea like, oh, this sounds lovely, this sounds cozy, but I don't have time for it. Or is this going to actually, you know, is this going to help academic achievement? Mm -hmm. And as we know, you know, yes, it, it, it really is. But, um, you know, as I referenced earlier, but a second kind of pushback buck bucket is this idea like, Oh, is this is this liberal brainwashing? Like, are you are you teaching yeah. my kids values? I don't I don't want you to teach my kids values. You know, that's my job as, as a parent. And what really makes me laugh is that, well, first of all, we aren't teaching value. There isn't any value instruction here. These are just strategies around how to know yourself, how to feel comfortable with yourself, how to um, understand and respect the lived experiences of others. I don't know, you know, this really isn't political. I don't know any educator in any school who wouldn't be um, sort of on board with, with these techniques that, that make kiddos, you know, more sort of functional. And what's really interesting is that conservative schools have actually historically been sort of the champions of SEL, though they may have called it something else. They may have called it character education. And um, I'm working with a very conservative Orthodox Jewish day school in New Jersey, and also a kind of like hashtag woke uh, independent elementary school uh, in lower Manhattan. And what's so fascinating is that I'm introducing the same strategies to both school leaders and to both sets of teachers. And they are, while the strategies are delivered in slightly different ways, the enthusiasm around them and the, the kiddos response to these strategies has been nearly identical. So, um, so I think that's just an interesting touch point. I think this is kind of being bucketed with a few other um, 
trend in education right now. And yeah, SEL, I wouldn't really bucket it as, as a conservative thing or a liberal thing. Well, thank you. And thank you for, for pointing that out. I think you, know, you, you highlighted two or three actual potential pushback points. One is, does this make a difference for kids learning? Yes. Do we actually have time to add one more thing to a really complex day? And then finally, is this some type of political agenda or is this a set of strategies? So I really, really appreciate the way that you delineated that for us. And I think everyone listening and me included, super curious, like let's dive into kind of how do we begin, continue, recognize, notice, name this work? Um, maybe a little like starting with, well, what are, what might we already be doing? Cause you've alluded to that, yeah. that there's a lot of things already happening in schools that are really supportive yes. for SEL. So maybe we can yeah. start with like helping folks kind of identify, oh, some affirmation. Yep. Yep. We're yep. Yep. There. And then let's kind of dive into, okay, some more specifics. That's such a great question because I always like to tell teachers that I think good PD is a mix of affirmation and illumination. Like it's got to confirm something you already believe to be true or something you're already doing well, right? In order to kind of hop on board and feel open enough to receive a new idea. Um, You know, teach the majority of the educators I've encountered didn't want to become teachers so that they could stand in the front of the classroom and, you know, just deliver content in a really objective way. They wanted to become teachers because they care about kids and they're interested in all that kids bring to school. They're interested in their relationships with kids. They want to uniquely know and see kids and in a differentiated way, support kids through their individual, you know, social, emotional, academic journeys. So a lot of what's happening right now, it's not that teachers don't want to jump into SEO, or is that they don't have um, their own really brilliant practices to cultivate relationships and to support students' individual um, you know, emotional lives. It's that they feel uh, paralyzed, they feel strangled. This current, you know, they feel micromanaged. They feel that they're not quote unquote allowed to do that. Mm. And it really breaks my heart, Michelle. I mean, I have worked with so many teachers who just start to cry about this and they, it's this national preoccupation with metrics, this idea of I have to measure something. You know, I, you know, of course, there's this whole nonsense around teaching to the test, but this idea that if I can't measure it or if I can't show the principal who can show the superintendent, did the learning actually happen? And um, there's a wonderful book called The Tyranny of Metrics by Jerry Mueller, where he writes, you know, a lot that is unimportant can be measured, and a lot that is important can't be measured. And SEL is really hard to measure. And when you try to measure it too much, it can kind of go awry. And so I think something school leaders can do is just say to teachers, okay, you have a plan, you have your lesson plan, but I don't expect that you're gonna be following it word for word. I expect that you're gonna honor and respond to what happens in the moment, right? I expect that you are going to use your judgment, use your training to meet kids where they are and to support them in the way that you feel like you need to support them. And by the way, that's what makes the job interesting and creative. Like that's what gets teachers fired up about their job and excited to come to work. It's when they feel like they're being scripted or teach sort of taught like or treated like a monkey or something that makes them really check out and not be their best self at work. And this is also rooted, of course, culturally in the semi-professionalism of teaching, sadly, because you would never say to a brain surgeon, okay, here's your plan for the surgery. Once you're in the, in the brain, no matter what you see, 
do not stray from the plan you came up with initially. Don't respond to what, what's happening in the moment. You say, try your best, use your judgment, use your expertise to help that patient be healthy. And teachers are sort of, you know, they're a little bit like brain surgeons that they have 22 little brains and, and they're hopefully responding to what's happening that is undoubtedly surprising and, um, you know, can sometimes be very hilarious or very moving or very tender or very sad. Uh, the school day is full of so many surprises. So I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is that school leaders need to give teachers space to mm -hmm. already do a lot of the SEL work that is natural to them and that they perhaps have done in the past before this metric obsessed moment. And school leaders can name it for, for teachers. If you can't name something, it remains kind of amorphous and not valued. Name, I value when you're flexible. I value when you tweak the lesson plan in the moment to help all children feel um, you know, feel known or feel successful. So I think that's the that's the most important thing that school leaders can do now before they um, before they even perhaps bring in a, a professional developer to teach explicit strategies. You know, somebody like me is just normalize and celebrate what's already happening. Mm. Oh, that's that's really powerful, and I know that um, teachers everywhere and and school leaders who are listening are are pausing just the way I am. Um, just yeah. to be trusted as a professional, I mean, and to be respected and to be heard and to be seen, it seems like it's a parallel to the SEL work we want to be doing in our classrooms for our students. Is that, yes. yeah, like just that that trust and that compassion and that understanding of um, individuals' uniqueness and expertise and passion, yeah. and creativity. And it doesn't mean that a school leader can't make a decision, right? Like this teacher, this teacher needs more support in this area. Or it doesn't mean that a school leader can't, uh, you know, push teachers, right? In the ways that teachers need to be pushed. We wanna, part of the problem is actually that school leaders also feel like their hands are tied. Like they can't often hire or fire the teachers they want to. So they're like, I have to collect all this data and I have to use all these metrics to prove to some person way up in the stratosphere, why I wanna hire this person or why I need to let go of this person. Like it all starts at the top. We need to trust the school leaders in order for them, you know, trust within reason, right? There should be checks and balances, but trust the school leaders in order for them to be able to trust the teachers themselves. Because many of the school leaders I've encountered who are the most prescriptive, who have no tolerance for letting teachers use their own judgment. They're just panicked. They're just really worried about reporting to the higher ups. Absolutely. Well, I think that's so important for us just to, to stop and consider the role of, of trust and autonomy and yeah. professionalism as part of this conversation. Um, I'd love yeah. for us to kind of shift into specific classroom strategies, if you will, or yeah. school-wide strategies. Um, perhaps some, some actions that teachers are already taking or doing that they might not have labeled as an SEL strategy. Yeah. Perhaps a couple of ideas that folks might want to consider incorporating or adjusting in yeah. their own practice. Thank you. So I guess, yeah, there's sort of the macro bucket and the micro yeah. bucket. And, and the macro bucket is, you know, something teachers can do is like, is ask themselves this question, you know, so what is a good day? is a good day when I set out to do like exactly what I plan to do. And I met every point of my lesson plan. 
and the kids quote unquote learned, or is a good day when I felt like I was present, when I met the kids where they are, when I was flexible, when there were these surprising moments of joy and connection and love and understanding. And if your answer is, you know, leaning towards the former, that's most likely not your fault. That's connected to your teacher training or your, perhaps your school leadership or cultural reasons, all sorts of things. But Michelle, what makes me laugh about the first bucket, right? That like, did I have a good day? Cause I, you know, stuck to the plan is that, you know, just cause the lesson happened doesn't mean that it actually worked as a young teacher. I'd be like, oh, everybody was quiet. Everybody was listening. Everyone did the independent worksheet. And I got through my six different activities of the day. You know, that was a productive day of learning. Uh, but a, a student really, a student recently said something really interesting. He said, oh, I, I look like I'm listening, but I go into the rowboat in my head and I row away to a more interesting place. And it just got me thinking, I think half the time when we think something has landed, honestly, it hasn't landed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the first way probably isn't even working in the way that you think that it's working or it's working for a few of your students, but not for all of them. Because we know that what makes students feel inspired, connected at school is if the learning is personal. And the learning certainly can't feel personal or engaging unless SEL is infused into it. Um, so I guess that's kind of a, a macro thing that, that um, teachers can do is, is begin to think about how can I reassess what it means to be a good teacher uh, or, to, or to have a good day. Another macro thing is just this idea of normalizing vulnerability first for the teacher, which sometimes sounds a little, um, I don't know what the word is, unprofessional or inappropriate. I am not talking about vulnerability in a, in a like you're not sharing your deepest, darkest fears with your, with your students, but you are being yourself. So um, back to Brene Brown, who's been a real inspiration for me, you know, she writes, vulnerability isn't weakness, it's our real it's our most accurate measure of strength. Vulnerability is you know, emotional exposure, openness, risk-taking capacity. And they're just little things teachers can do to model that for their kids because vulnerability is like a, a prerequisite for, for both emotional literacy and for connection. You know, you know, when you're modeling a personal narrative story, I've worked with many teachers who are like, oh, I wrote about going to the beach. And I say, did you go to the beach? And they say, no, I made that up. And I'm like, well, don't make it up. You know, <laughs> Tell something true. Share like a true idiosyncratic thing that happened to you or in an appropriate way, share about a true longing or something that is truly funny to you or perhaps you know, a, a worry that you have that you're working through. That's true. Because when teachers model that kind of humanity, like navigating their own humanity with students, then, then students, you know, can sort of follow suit and also learn how to navigate their own humanity. And kids love to see teachers as whole people. It gives them permission to be whole people um, too. And so then moving into the micro, like, uh, you know, back to this idea of just because I just referenced it, let's say a teacher is modeling writing a personal narrative, which many, many elementary school teachers do. Something you, you can do uh, that I found to be really powerful is just normalize for kids that just because you think something in your head doesn't make it true, which is pretty groundbreaking, right? Like I'm still grappling with that as an adult. I like to share, even with kindergartners, I've shared like a version of this David Foster Wallace quote, which is that learning how to think means learning how to pay attention to uh, 
learning how to think means learning how to choose what to pay attention to in your own mind. So the idea that you're writing a personal narrative and you're really, really worried about jumping off, I don't know, the diving board. And in your writing, you might say, I heard the voice of worry saying X, Y, and Z. I heard the voice of fear saying X, Y, and Z. But I have a best self. My best self is my truest, kindest, bravest self. And my best self said back to that voice of worry, whatever it is. So you're, you're literally teaching self-talk. And by the way, you're also teaching like inner monologues, you know, internal <laughs> conflict, all those great literacy skills, SEL and literacy are such a beautiful marriage. You're modeling that as you're teaching writing. Then the kids practice it in their writing and then they also practice it on themselves. Does that make sense? It does. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on. Like when you're reading aloud, um, there's a strategy a lot of teachers respond to well called spotlighting, where you just pause in a moment of tension and you ask kids to like physically embody the perspective of the character. And you might tap them on the head or point at them and say, share exactly what you're thinking right now. Name all of your feelings, which of course, not only triggers or helps kids cultivate an emotional vocabulary, but also makes them stronger readers, right? Their comprehension is deeper. With older kids, I like to do something called coaching characters. Well, you'll pause in a read aloud when a character is on the verge of not making such a great decision and kids can kind of improvise. All right, what, what should the character's best self say back to this, you know, to the cacophonous voices in the character's head? And they get to, they get to literally, you know, act out or sometimes write out the, the discussion that's happening in the character's head. And then you do it in the context of literature, it's much easier to turn the mirror on yourself and uh, use that same strategy when you're uh, struggling. Wow, absolutely. So you've given us you know, two very tangible, concrete strategies that teachers can easily incorporate even into their writing curriculum and practices or during that read aloud time. Are yeah. there any other strategies, if you will, or actions or moves, or just anything you want to highlight as teachers are returning to their classrooms this fall and, you know, really trying to create this, this opportunity for a new normal? Yes, um, absolutely. You know, I think COVID was just such a, it was such a deeply hard time for everybody. Mm -hmm. One unexpected gift of COVID though, is that for many of the teachers I've worked with, if they were telling themselves the story, like, okay, when the kid comes into my classroom, what they bring doesn't matter. I'm going to level the playing field. I'm going to teach everybody the same strategy. We're going to do the same independent worksheet. That narrative was kind of shattered because you're, you're teaching virtually and you see, okay, this child has a caregiver right next to him, helping him through every moment of this lesson. This, care, this child is literally caring for a baby sister at the same time. This child is crying. That child just walked away from their computer. <laughs> like you had these sort of portals into kids' worlds and you no longer had this captive audience in your brick and mortar classroom where you could maybe tell yourself the story, okay, we're all here. It's a kind of, you know, let's just focus on what's happening here. And so COVID illuminated for teachers, I think, in a way what my third graders illuminated for me, which is that, that kids have these full whole worlds that they are bringing to their learning. And then in order to be effective, teachers have to take those worlds into account, right? Whether it has to do with a child's inner world or perhaps just a circumstance in the child's life. 
So that reckoning um, inspired many teachers to just throw old plans out the window, right? And do what they needed to do to meet kids where they are so that the kids literally wouldn't walk away from the computer. And I think we can keep that approach with us. This idea of, okay, you are all bringing a ton to the classroom. How can I make space for it and honor it? It's very easy to do that within writing and reading instruction. I would argue you can also do that easily in morning meeting or in closing circle and social studies instruction, even in mathematics instruction. Just this idea of, I'm curious about you. What are you bringing to school? Because whatever it is you bring is going to inform how I teach you. Mm -hmm. I'm going to teach the kid, not the curriculum. If I just taught in precisely the same way that I taught in another year, I wouldn't really be meeting you where you are. And I think that is such a, um, not only is that a much more joyful way to teach as a teacher, because you, as I keep mentioning surprises, but like the joy of teaching in this way is that you're constantly surprised, amused, amazed, (laughs) but also it's just a much more effective way to teach because kids will feel so much more connected to each other, connected to you, connected to the curriculum. Um, And that leads to really wonderful things. Well, thank you so much. I mean, just the the emphasis that you have placed in this conversation on knowing, knowing our students and our colleagues as as people, knowing their stories, um, understanding the full whole world that is beyond the walls of the classroom, um, can really bring about that connectedness. Mm-hmm. And really help develop those those tools and strategies for social and emotional learning. As we as we wrap up today, what is your call to action? Oh, what a question! So, I think my call to action, if you're an administrator, is you know it echoes something that we talked about before, Michelle. But the call to action is if you can try to push back against the culture of obsessive measurement, data collection, and standardization, and tell teachers that you trust them to use their judgment in their classroom. If you're a teacher, my call to action is if you have an administrator who's already letting you do that, say thank you and, and proceed. If you don't, close your door and do what's best for kids. Every great teacher I know at some point just closes his or her door and meets kids where they are. And, um, you know, Parker Palmer, are you familiar with his book, The Courage to Teach? Mm-hmm. It is such a wonderful book. He writes, you know, it's interesting. Every school leader is all about the courage to teach, right? But I'm like, if you read that book, it's all about normalizing vulnerability, trusting teachers to use their judgment, um, FBL. But he writes that, you know, the most powerful tool that any teacher has at his or her disposal is just his or her selfhood, right? Like, mm-hmm. are you willing to make yourself available and vulnerable in the service of learning? So I guess my, my final call to action is this idea of just bringing your health self to school first and normalizing your own vulnerability. Like the more, and again, it doesn't veer to the unprofessional. You're just sharing your unique, you know, wonderings, predilections, preferences, hopes, et cetera, share that with your students, particularly in the context of morning meeting or in the context of modeling your own writing. When you bring your full humanity to school, I think that um, kids realize what they thought might alienate them from other people or from teachers is often actually what connects them most deeply. And you're sort of setting the tone for that kind of connection in your classroom. 
Lily, thank you so much for opening your heart and your mind with us today. You have given us those opportunities for affirmation, as you mentioned, and of course, inspiration and implementation. So thank you. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.